Welcome to Probably Science. We're on the road. I'm in Colorado visiting the girlfriend's family, um, currently in the basement of their house, of the parents' house, um, and an old uni friend of mine lives just up the road. That's right. Nice to meet you again. Yeah. <laughs> it's been um, I, I was, 14 years or so. It's been so long. I... I Pete Newton, what are you now, Doctor Professor Pete Newton? What? Sure, all, all of the above. Yeah. All of the <laughs> Doctor Professor. Uh, yeah, I got my PhD uh, six years ago back in the UK, and then I've been in the US uh, since then, really, since 2012. I'm now a professor at the University of Colorado Boulder, just down the road. It's a very nice. I've been up to Boulder. It's a beautiful town to be living in. It's there are good, worse places to end up as an a, academic. It's a very nice place to wind up. Yeah, absolutely. Let, let's start. Let's start kind of towards the beginning, and then we'll get on to, like, I saw you did a TED Talk, and I want to get on to what that was about, but that's also not what your main field of research is in. Sure. That's what your sort of teaching field is in. TEDx, just to qualify, but yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so, you were a natural sciences student at uni, right? Right, right. I did. studied natural sciences, specialized in zoology. And then you went into the environmental science field. Yeah, yeah. I left college and uh, did non-academic stuff for a few years. I worked in ecotourism in Botswana in Southern Africa. I uh, worked as a safari guide for a couple of years and managed safari camps in uh, rural Botswana. And then um, re-found my academic roots and went back to university in the UK for a master's in applied ecology and conservation. And then stayed on at the University of East Anglia for a PhD in environmental sciences. Yeah. Nice. Again, there are worse places to end up than... After doing the, the a science Norwich. degree, then. Well, <laughs> Norwich as well. I was thinking more Botswana and right, eco. Right. Hey, okay, so what does ecotourism involve? Well, so I mean, ecotourism is uh, any any form of tourism that's based around, around nature and wildlife. And so um, I was a, a safari guide at a camp in the Makadikadi Pans area of north northern Botswana, uh, taking um, mostly wealthy guests on, on safari. Um, yeah, I lived in one camp in the middle of Kalahari for, for two years and then uh, moved further north to the edge of the Okavango Delta for, for the final third year and managed safari camps up there. Okay, so I'm wildly ignorant of what's around that area. What are the, uh, what flora and fauna are we looking at there? What? Oh, so Botswana has really kind of made a name as one of the premier uh, safari destinations. So in the Okavango Delta and the areas around that, there's all of the big game, elephants, hippos, leopards, cheetah, buffalo hippos the rest uh where i was to start with down in the kalahari is dry and so there's um it was more there was kind of more unusual animals there were meerkats and uh um, some big game a lot of zebra came through seasonally and flamingos and things for the water um a few cheetah some lion occasionally um uh, aardvarks we had some some kind of more unusual stuff ostriches yeah again that's okay that's not a bad place to live yeah. for a handful <laughs> was, of years it was a good few years yeah. <laughs> uh like, how many of the tour guides that, like, did, did you kind of have to have a degree in something science-y to get the gig as a tour guide in that environment? So, yeah, the, the camp I worked at first, this place called Jack's Camp, um, was a little unusual. And so it was actually advertising at Cambridge. So it was while I was in my third year at Cambridge University uh-huh. that I, they saw this position advertised. And they, um, I guess the theme of the camp was somewhat sort of colonial-esque. Uh, and because it was off in the middle of... The desert where there wasn't a lot of the sort of traditional big game where um, people would just sort of automatically get excited about. Uh, they had this tradition of, of hiring guides who had zoology and science degrees to act as guides. Um, as a and way also, of kind of going like, all right, 
you can't see a hippo right now, but here's why a meerkat should excite you. Exactly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which actually made it really fun because it was a challenge. And so people would fly into this camp on these little six-seater Cessna aeroplanes uh-huh. and just for the last sort of 45 minutes of the flight see absolutely nothing but desert and, and sort of sort of barren, what look like wasteland. Right. Uh, and land, and then usually, you know, this this couple who'd be on their honeymoon or something, whoever hadn't booked it would look at the other one and go, <laughs> what the hell have you booked and why are we here? <clears throat> and, uh, and be super sceptical about the whole thing. Yep. And then it was our job in the next two or three days, however long they were there, to totally turn them around. And as often as not we would, it would be really fun to sort of get them excited about things they had never even heard about before. So like people didn't necessarily know what a meerkat was or right. had never heard of, a, of an aardvark or... Uh, you know, some of this of other sort of stranger, lesser known wildlife. People and... who clearly don't do crosswords for a hobby. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Classic crossword word. Right. Um, and so that was kind of fun to get, to get people excited about even, you know, the very sm- the insects and there's, um, the, the camp was situated on the edge of a big um, uh, sort of prehistoric, now dried up lake. So it was one of the huge great lakes of uh, of inland Africa, where um, hundreds of thousands of years ago, some of the sort of early hominid species had lived, and so you could find stone tools and fossils and all this really cool stuff. Oh, cool! Um, that you would just stumble across, uh, sort of, um, yeah, you know, rock tools and knives and, and sort of uh, hammers and axes and things, and so you could get people excited about that kind of stuff. That that's had never... that's. I mean, I don't know. Speaking personally, yeah, I would like. It'd be pretty cool. I've never been to Africa at all, so it would certainly be very cool to see a hippo in the wild or a lion in the wild, but I would be so much more excited seeing a prehistoric tool <laughs> right. that you could then go, like, this is... Yeah, the last person to, to hold this was was you know, here 200,000 years ago. And this is one of the markers, yeah. of, this is one of the markers of when evolution, as where we branched into a, uh, a species that can then advance to where we are today. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it was, uh, it was, it was, um, so there's all sorts of, sort of the hist- history and, and there was some sort of um, traces and stories around Livingstone and some of the sort of early, in, uh, sort of early um, African uh-huh. explorers, and um, and then the sort of the early human history aspects. And then these salt pans were just um, really incredible. They're, it, it, it's a bit, I, I guess I've never been to the moon, but it's what I imagined like being on the moon is like. It's just nothing. You go out into the, on quad bikes, would take people out on like, ATVs uh, into the middle of the salt pan, and then. You can't see anything for, for 360 degrees. It's just like you're, you're on this sort of other planet. Um, and so then you would get people excited about literally nothing. Because like, you're yeah. just out there and it's silent and there's nothing to see. And so the sunsets and then there's obviously the stars uh, out there are just phenomenal. Oh, God, yeah. Because that has to be about the lowest light pollution it's possible right. to have. Right. Yeah, the nearest light bulb is, you know, in excess of 50 miles away. and that's... That must be incredible. Just... I. Again, I've never been anywhere nearly that remote, but even, you know, growing up in London and then living most of my life in mid to large cities, when you do, when you even go somewhere like in the mountains or whatever, or even 50 miles away from a city and suddenly you're like, oh, that's why people wrote poems about the stars because if you grow up in London or another big town, you're like, no, the stars are the things that come out at night. I mean, I wouldn't write an ode to it but then when you're suddenly when you suddenly see oh shit it really is just this magical thing that appears after dark right and you can see the milky way stretching across the galaxy and and just uh <clears throat> and and just see the see the whole thing coming out it's pretty it's pretty good here if you get beyond the front range of the mountains and sort of get a little away from away from denver and the, and the lights well that, um, but that also totally... is something that um you know when you grew up in england that 
there's no concept of remote in England. I mean, there really isn't. Like, anything in Britain that describes, like, a remote cottage isn't remote by American or Australian or or certainly African standards. There's nowhere in Britain you can really be where if you walk for an hour in any direction, you won't stumble across some kind of sign of humanity. Or someone will tell you you can't walk there. Nor is there much in the way of actual nature, as in land that is wild and untouched by, by humans. Most of the UK at this point is... In some way, anthropogenically modified to, to right. farmland or grazeland. Even even the national parks, which are sort of celebrated as as kind of the UK's wild places, are, are largely modified. Are right. Yeah. I guess I've never been up to the the highlands of Scotland, but even then, there's, there's, there's the, probably patches. But, there's yeah. pat- but even then, there a lot of sort of you end up in sort of little islands, and you you still can't go that far. It's not like yeah. in Australia you can, or in the middle of America you can literally walk for a day and a half and die because you just don't you right. don't find there's no one there you just walk in a straight line for a day and a half and you will keep walking and you'll keep you're just walking further away from people rather than towards people yeah yeah so these so these salt pans were not a not a place to get lost people did occasionally not our guests i should hasten to say but yeah. uh, people who were driving themselves out there or exploring on their own or something uh, and would occasionally get lost and that was that was had the potential to become messy, but yeah, um, yeah, it was a pretty spectacular place. So, what yeah. was your your masters and then your PhD in? Yeah, so my masters was in applied ecology and conservation. The uh-huh. research thesis I wrote for that was uh, on pangolins. Do you, do you know what a pangolin is? Hang on, I do, because a mutual friend of ours at university was obsessed with them. Now really? I'm trying to remember who it was. Judith, Judith Pickin. I did not know that. She, for it... some reason, was obsessed with pangolins, and that was the first time I'd ever heard of that word. Huh. Oh, well, that's, <laughs> that's a, a, a strange um, yeah shared history that I did not expect to have. But um, yeah, so pangolins are scaly anteaters uh, that live uh, four species in Africa and four in Southeast Asia, uh, and they are one of the most heavily hunted, one of the most heavily trafficked mammals in the world. Um, so although most people have not heard of them, they are hunted extensively and sold. Uh, what what is it that they're hunted for? Uh, mostly for their meat, and so it's sort of. Mo- it's, I was working in Vietnam for this, uh, for this um, thesis research, um, and so they're hunted all over Southeast Asia and now increasingly in Africa, um, but then a lot of them are sold in Vietnam, but also mostly to China, uh, and so they're sort of feeding the, uh, a desire for strange and unusual meats, and so bush meats, wild meats have a sort of particular social status in some communities, and and um, for some people and so they're worth a lot and they'll be sold in restaurants uh, on the black market for a lot of money but then also for the scales and so they're sort of a little bit like rhino horn they're kind of considered the scales that oh, considered so like to have medicinal for medicine properties. or virility or some other <clears throat> bullshit like that yeah yeah so there's, there's not a great uh, scientific literature backing up the, the utility of using pangolin scales for anything but yeah well, um, I presume the rhino horn just comes from it looks a bit like a cock so someone <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Someone a, a couple of thousand years like ago went, Well, Adel, if you if you eat something that looks like a cock, it'll obviously enhance your cock. That's how <laughs> perhaps that's the, the train of thinking. I don't know how that would map onto the on the, the, the scales. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's just like anything rare, someone yeah. shitty has just gone Yeah. So anything rare, someone's gonna like monetize that because it's rare. Right. And then if they're like, Well, why should I want that? Then you have to go for sex and it'll make you good at sex or it'll make sex happen more or Sex cells, yeah. So, uh, so pangolins, are, uh, sort of, their populations are being decimated, it's thought. Um, and so the research that we were doing, the, the idea was that um, you know, these animals are being hunted heavily, 
And if conservationists want to do anything about them, they need to know more about the animals. Uh, but field biologists, really new and ecologists, knew next to nothing about where pangolins live and how they live and what sort of habitat they need and that kind of stuff. So we, um, our initial idea was to go out and to sort of learn about pangolin ecology by asking hunters. So the, the idea was, well, biologists are really pretty rubbish at finding these animals, but hunters are obviously doing a pretty good job of it. <laughs> <laughs> so let's ask the people that know. Um, and so I worked with a Vietnamese research uh, scientist, uh, and we toured around these small remote Vietnamese villages by motorbike, um, persuading pangolin hunters to, to talk with us about <laughs> what they do and why and how they find pangolins, um, which they were, for the most part, pretty happy to do. Uh, I think... <laughs> That's I mean, surprising. Well, I guess maybe it doesn't surprise me, but... Well, so it's illegal, um, but as soon as they were assured that we had no relation to any kind of law enforcement agency, and we were just kind of two naive, curious scientists wanting to find out more, I think they were pretty happy to talk. And hunters often, in lots of places in the world, know so much. They're really good naturalists because they... You, to hunt something, you really have to understand it, right? You have to know its habitat, its behavior, its movements, its right. tracks, etc. It's almost like... It, it is sort of natural selection, a kind of. They, they've <laughs> honed in on the right way to find these animals because it's survival or not survival. Yeah, you're not going to be a, you're not going to be a successful hunter if you can't figure handed, anything out. And I'm it. sure it's also handed down from through generations yeah. as well. The information. Yeah. And so they have all this knowledge, but I think for the most part, people don't ask them about it. You know, they don't get home after a day's hunting, and their their wives aren't sort of these are generally male hunters, um, right. uh, sort of sitting them down and asking to be told about <clears throat> their, their day's sort of exploration of pangolin habitat. So to get two people who are just really curious and asking them questions, they were pretty happy to open up. And we learned a ton, so we learned um, lots of things about pangolin ecology and behavior. Uh, but I think it really, it was kind of a shift, a sort of a pivot point in my research uh -huh. interests in that it became very apparent that the thing, the, the threat to pangolins was not insufficient knowledge of their habitat and behavior and ecology, but really the... Um, was two things, the, the incentives for people to hunt them. So these were mostly farmers who were eking out a living in these sort of pretty remote areas trying to grow enough crops to feed their family. But then on the side, if they could make you know, a month's wages by hunting, finding and, and selling a single pangolin, it was well worth their while to do so. Right. So the incentives were in favor of this illegal behavior. None of them particularly wanted to engage in, but you know, when that's the sort of the, the, the calculation, then... Right. then Probably we, we similar were. to farm, farmers who are involved in growing drug crops as well, presumably where they're like, "Well, I'd, I'd happily grow soybeans or wheat, right?" If, but I'm, I'm struggling to get by on my sort of, bit, you know. But if I can grow opium poppies or coca plants, sure, yeah, yeah. And then the other part of it was the um, the very corrupt law enforcement situation, and so the 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 park guards and rangers, and not in all cases, obviously, but in lots of cases, um, were kind of in on the act and, right. and colluding with with the people who were hunting and trading and things. So without effective law enforcement, there was a negligible chance for, for these species to, to do better. Because, again, I, I'm, I'm sort of... I, maybe I'm sort of projecting my ideas onto <clears throat> this community. But, again, just trying to put myself in the he headspace of these people. Again, like you, you describe, if one pangolin pays you a month's worth of farming... Right. And, really, if you're in that position, who gives a fuck about the pangolin species' survival numbers? Particularly, also, if... The scarcer they are, the more they're worth. Right, which is part of the problem, right? So the rarer they become, the more they're worth, the it'll still be worth hunting right. them, even if it takes, as long as even it takes twice the effort, as long as that... As long as that was, yeah, uh, as long as you don't hunt them to extinction, as long as there's right. a few left, the rarer they become, actually, the more valuable they are. Yeah, although even then it the becomes a sort of tragedy of the common situation. Of, right. Of everyone is... You have this sort of common pool resource of a finite number of animals that people are hunting, and... Um, anyway, so that yeah, so it was it was an interesting and pretty sad sort of uh, from a conservation wildlife conservation perspective um, 
Uh, but it was, it was informative for me as to sort of say, well, conservation problems, and this is fairly apparent really, but conservation problems are really human problems and it's about about the institutions and the policies and the behaviours of human beings that, that is the critical thing. And so, Right, the thing to do is to create a society where farmers don't need to do this to survive. Right, exactly. Rather than criminalise the pouncing of the pangolin, it's like actually improve, yeah. bring up their welfare to the point that it no longer becomes an economic necessity. Right, offer people better livelihoods, alternative livelihoods that... That, yeah. are in, that are aligned with conservation values. Yeah, because right now it's them. the judgment call of like, okay, the risk the risk of being caught for this criminal activity versus the reward of it is way out of whack. Right, right. And you've got two ways to you've got two ways to fix that problem. You either massively increase the the risk by increasing the punishment, which becomes very horrible and totalitarian, or you increase the alternative options so that it no longer so that the scales are balanced the other way. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's and that's where I've been sort of more interested in since then in my research has been in studying social environmental systems that try to address conservation and livelihood uh, outcomes at the same time and try to sort of create these kind of win-win situations for for people and the environment. So what is what is your research now? Um, well, it's sort of an intermediate step, I guess. So I, I went from <clears throat> that master's research to into a PhD. Oh right, yeah. <clears throat> um, and so during my PhD, I started working in in Brazil. Um, and have been working in for the last 10 years or so in and around the Brazilian Amazon uh, on questions around forest conservation and, and rural livelihoods and sustainable agriculture. So my PhD was right off in the sort of depths of northwestern Brazilian Amazon um, in a part of Brazil that's very much still intact forest. Um, it was this to get to our study site was sort of fly into Manaus which is the, the only city in the state of Amazonas in Brazil and then it was a three hour flight west from there to a tiny little town and I and presume then, that flight was on a not it was like a 12 seater plane or something and then a th- uh, like a 10 hours by boat up river how um, much time have you spent on those tiny 12 seater planes because <laughs> it feels like whenever there's a crash that's what they happen like that, that <laughs> Like, they seem like amongst the least safe forms of transport. That's that's probably right. I haven't... It feels like also, actually, every bit of your research has involved unsafe forms of transport, (laughs) because you're also buzzing around Vietnam on the back of a motorbike, and... Yeah, that's right. Uh, Yeah, I never really thought of it in those terms. (laughs) (laughs) I should probably find safer ways of getting around. (laughs) But, yeah, I don't know, because I've been on... The times I've been on smaller aircraft, they've been like little puddle jumpers in Canada, but it's like, you know, it's operated by Air Canada or WestJet, and I feel relatively safe on that one, and it's still a jet engine rather than, or a turboprop. These feel like they're like Indiana Jones planes. Right, operated by 19-year-olds who had just got their pilot's license and (laughs) sort of testing testing themselves out for the first time. I guess the the upside of a small plane crash is that you at least have some chance of getting out. I, I think I know... I know of several small planes that came down while we were in Botswana, for example, but, you know, there's at least a 50-50 chance of Oh, that's a fair out. point, because you're also not flying that high and you're not flying that fast compared to a jet. Right, right. So, <laughs> make that trade-off. <laughs> uh, okay, so you flew... So you have to... So you, you fly into the you, you fly into the Amazon. You take the ty- the twelve seater plane further into the right. jungle, uh, into to a small town, and then from there on there were no no roads, so it's all river travel by boat. Uh, and so to get to our we were we were working in two um, extractive reserves, which are sort of sustainable development reserves, protected areas, uh, huge places, and it was about ten hours by boat by speedboat to get 
to the edge of the first one of those. So this is fairly, fairly remote. Forest. You say ten hours by by boat, yeah, by like, speedboat, yeah. So it's sort of yeah, t- t- ten hours of sitting with a hand on the outboard motor. Just... Do you have? Is there a medic like a on the we, we in did, the group or no? We did, no, we did not. <clears throat> um, I do remember filling out the the risk assessment for so obviously <laughs> through a university, you know, you to sort of fill out a risk assessment the first time we were heading off into this field site in my. PhD advisor sort of looked it down and obviously you sort of put the risk and then what you do to address it or minimize the risk right yeah and he sort of looked at it and went well this looks all good I put stuff about you know sunburn and getting lost and insect bites and this kind of thing and he wrote one more column at the bottom put large aquatic predators evasion evasive action don't swim in the river great <laughs> I was like great thanks Carlos <laughs> uh, what, what do you got there I presume crocodiles uh, uh, caiman yeah anac- okay uh, anacondas anacondas yeah, it'll be the the two main things in the in the river. Uh, dolphins too, river dolphins, but they're not dangerous. So Are there piranhas just... there? Piranhas, yeah, yeah. Although they uh, piranhas would only only attack if you were bleeding profusely or otherwise injured or, w- or wounded. So. Is that so? I've been lied to yeah. by Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. James, James Bond has uh, <laughs> has not not told the story well. <laughs> uh, so piranhas are not not so much of a concern. But Cayman and uh, one of our one of our field assistants got uh, attacked by an anaconda while we were while we were working there. Uh, okay. He, he was off fishing on his own on the uh, 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 dusk, I guess, in a sort of dugout canoe at the edge of the river, and um, got knocked out of his out of his canoe by an anaconda. What then or, happened? Or so he claims, at least. Uh, <laughs> he, he had he had marks that conceivably looked like fang marks on his side. Um, he well, his story was he wrestled with this thing for. Uh, he was right at the edge of the river, and so managed to get hold of some sort of vines on the edge of the river and pull himself out. But the the snake would sort of be dragging him back in, and <clears throat> so. Who knows how much embellishment, but uh, he, yeah, he came back pretty, pretty shaken up. I'd so. say even being knocked out of a canoe by an anaconda, <laughs> if there's no bites afterwards, is enough to w- worthy of, of, of being a little shaken worth. up. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I agree. Yeah. So what? So you're 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 ten ten hours by boat away from the nearest town, and right. what is the research you're doing when you're there? Yeah, so we were um, uh, looking at how these sustainable development reserves, which are these protected areas, set up. To, to conserve biodiversity, and so the Amazon's the most biodiverse terrestrial ecosystem, um, and also obviously carbon rich, and so um, there's a great interest in conserving tropical forests, uh-huh. um, including the Amazon, um, but also supporting the livelihoods of people that live in and around uh, tropical forests. So millions of people depend on forests for their livelihoods, um, for all sorts of things, for food, for cooking fuel, for income, from selling the medicinal products or other things from the forest um, and so uh, a lot of people working on tropical forests are interested not only in conserving the forest but also supporting these these livelihoods and so these sustainable development reserves are set up with the idea of achieving those those two things and we the project as a whole was trying to understand the extent to which um, these these places were achieving those those goals and I was particularly interested in in how um, people would use forest resources to support their livelihoods um, so how <clears throat> how they what what uh, non timber forest products that they would use to um, to sell and to generate income. What kind of things um, would they sell? So um, there was some oils from from um, seeds and from um, directly extracted from trees that, that uh, they had small industries in there. So they would sell um, angioba and copaiba oils to 
the Brazilian equivalent of the body shop, um, so Natura it's called. Um, okay. And so and they would be packaged into cosmetics or um, other products that, that would have a market in the sort of urban areas of Brazil. Uh, and so those sorts of things are, are generating money in some places. Acai, probably heard of. Absolutely. So, yeah. It's the new super. It's the. Well, it's probably not even the new superfood. It's probably three superfoods ago. <laughs> exactly. It's way down the list at this point. But uh, yeah. Yeah. So Acai is now like making an international name for itself, but it's been consumed in Brazil for, for decades. It's actually, it's actually sort of a, a staple food in, in the Amazon. People use it to fill up. Uh, they don't really think of it as a, a superfood. So it's it's just sort of a, quinoa is just a, the, gra- just, the, right. the grain that they have. Right, exactly. It's just the food. Um, so acai has been consumed in the Amazon for a long time. It's exported all around Brazil and now has found international markets as well. So right. people are finding ways of making money from that. And then uh, Amazonian fish, so there's some really good... Um, very valuable uh, freshwater fish that have um, fished in the Amazon that are, uh, have again found domestic and increasingly international markets, uh, and so these are all kind of um, potentially viable alternatives to clearing forest and um, and sort of generating money from agriculture, which is the one of, right because I like the beef trade is one of the worst offenders for that, isn't it? Like they clear huge tracts of forest to just create graze cattle grazing yeah yeah and so this is kind of the more where i've moved with research in the last few years is looking at the sort of <clears throat> so that this is the phd with stuff was right off in the heart of the amazon and then but then around the edge of the amazon to the south and east sides um that's where a lot of the deforestation has been uh and then most of that has been because of um creating cattle pasture and and growing soy um soy for animal feed right um, and so yeah so Beef, uh, leather, and soy are kind of the the biggest drivers of Amazonian deforestation. So that's, from an environmental point of view, from a carbon point of view, that's sort of a double tragedy, isn't it? Because on on the one, you're you're firstly clearing out huge amounts of carbon sinks, like huge amounts of green forest that is producing, absorbing carbon dioxide and giving off oxygen. And then you're and then you're using that space for the cattle industry, which is one of the worst emitters of of, of greenhouse gases. Right. Yeah. Huge yeah. amounts of methane. Huge amounts of uh, everything. Right. Right. So huge amounts of carbon dioxide uh, released when you when you deforest when you clear a forest. Um, it also removes the opportunity for carbon sequestration. There's no longer trees growing there. Uh-huh. Uh, and yeah, if you're replacing it with cows that emit huge amounts of methane, then well, this, this seems like a good point to segue into the thing that you did the TEDx talk on, <coughs> and you're saying this is not your area of research, but it is what you te- what you mostly teach at Boulder. Yeah, so so well, my research is sort of as I've described till now, and so I particularly now look at uh, I'm in, and I'm interested in this sort of commodity agriculture in the tropics, so cattle, soy, palm oil, um, which are the big drivers of deforestation, not just in Brazil but in Indonesia and elsewhere in the tropics. Uh-huh. Um, and so a lot of my research looks at policies and programs like certification programs um, that try to um, to improve the sustainability of, the, of those industries. So if you're going to produce cows and beef and if you're going to produce palm oil and soy and things, there are still better and worse ways of doing it and ways that will preserve what forest is remaining and reduce emissions and be more efficient. And so certification programs like the Rainforest Alliance and other, um, uh, other certifications you might see on your coffee or chocolate or tea when you buy those help to ensure that sort of best practices are met within those within those sectors Uh, and so a lot of my recent research has been um, looking at the efficacy of those certification programs and trying to understand how they can 
be improved or how they can recruit more participants and get more farmers involved so that um, those commodities that are being produced are at least being produced in the best possible way. And then, uh, so, so to that extent, a lot of my research has been uh, directly or indirectly about food, um, but in this case, sort of mostly sort of commodities in the tropics. Um, but I was, I was hired here then at CU Boulder to teach classes on food systems and the environment. So part of what I teach is on my research, but then as with most professors, our sort of research is pretty narrow but deep, and then we teach more broadly. Right, because there was a limited number of students that want to know exactly what we what right, we work and that, on. particularly in the undergraduate level, you're like you need to give them a firm <clears throat> grounding and everything. Right, exactly. So, so I've started teaching since moving here three years ago. Started teaching more classes that um, just look at food system sustainability much more broadly, uh, which is something I've always been interested in, and this has just been a great way of getting more involved in conversations around. Um, local food and organic food and GMOs and food waste and animal agriculture and all of the other kind of hot topics well, in, in food systems. Well, let, let's get into this because one of the biggest takeaways and sort of, and I think we'd even mentioned this on the show a while back, on our show a while back, because uh, it was such a surprising result, but then you sort of went into it in detail in this TEDx talk, um, is the how counterintuitively eating local may not have the carbon footprint effect that you think it does. In fact, it might actually have a negative carbon footprint. Right, right. So there's, I think there's a few areas where there are sort of these, what I, what I consider to be sort of food myths, I guess, that there's sort of um, purportedly easy answers to sort of fixing the food system problem, and it's predictably not as easy or straightforward as it seems at first sight. And this is, I think, one of the the biggest ones is the idea of food miles, uh, and so the the sort of the local food movement, broadly speaking, um, has sort of grown hugely in the U.S. and or mm-hmm. parts of the U.S. and and, and Western Europe in in the last um, decade or so. And one of the big claims of of the local food movement is that um, that buying local food is better for the environment because it reduces the distance that food travels from the farm to the fork and therefore um, fewer greenhouse gas emissions are emitted from whatever fossil fuel driven transport is needed to move right. the food. Which certainly at first, <clears throat> that definitely seems to make sense. If you you see the label on a fruit saying grown in Israel or grown in Australia, whatever, and you go, well, hang on a second, I'm, I know how long it takes me to fly to Israel or Australia. Right. So if this pair has done the same the same journey, that seems incredibly inefficient. That seems like a horrible carbon footprint. Right. I'm much better off buying something that says grown in the next state over. Sure. Yeah. So it's, it has a... Or uh, even this state or even the next town over. Exactly. Yeah. So it has an, 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 an intuition about it, which, which seems very appealing. Um, and indeed, that would be true if, if all else were equal. So if you could grow that pair in, what do you say, Israel? Yeah. At exactly the same... Um, input cost as you can grow it uh, in a farm just down the road, then of course the, the, the difference in transportation would make all the difference. And right. indeed, if you fly food, then then the carbon footprint of transporting it is relatively high. Yeah. Um, but a lot of food is not flown, it's shipped uh, by either by, by seafaring ships or, or by, you know, lorries and things on the on the roads. Um, and and so the, <clears throat> there's a couple of things to sort of, that, that sort of push back against the food miles idea. So the first is that if you look at the whole carbon footprint of an item of food that includes not just the transport, but all of the inputs, so the sort of seeds, fertilizers, pesticides, etc., that go into the food system, into the farm, uh-huh. everything that happens on the farm, so plowing the land, planting, irrigating, harvesting, and then you'll process the food somehow, um, 
ship it, package it, retail it, ship it to the consumer. The consumer will pick it up and drive it to their, their own home and then cook it, refrigerate it, store it, uh, and throw some of it out. So if you look at that whole life cycle analysis yeah. of every single stage in a, in a food's um, cradle to grave um, and sort of call that the, the carbon footprint, then the, the, um, the greenhouse gas emissions from moving it from the farm to the retailer, which is the only bit of the whole life cycle that is affected by, by locally by produced food, yeah. that's about, on average in the US, about 3 to 4% of all the greenhouse gas emissions of the whole thing. And so the starting point is pretty small. So the, the emissions you can save by producing it locally are, are, are tightly capped at like 3 or 4% of the whole thing. Now, obviously, 3 or 4% of everyone's carbon, if you kind of aggregate that up over your lifetime or right. whatever, there's a lot of carbon. So if you can reduce that, it'd be worth doing. So if all else <clears> is <throat> equal, then it definitely does make sense to eat locally. Right. But all else is not equal. Very rarely, yeah. And so usually... Well, every food has some optimum growing conditions of soil and climate and temperature and rainfall and, and all that kind of thing, right? Um, and so um, if, if producing food locally means producing it in conditions that are um, not optimal, then you're going to have to put in more inputs or more energy uh, or you're going to produce less for the same input and energy than if you produced it where it's produced optimally in the optimal growing conditions. Right. And so uh, on, in the production stage of... Uh, of, the, of that sort of big food life cycle, about 80% of emissions come from production. And so you only need a small increase in production inefficiency or a decrease in efficiency um, f to, for that to outweigh any savings you'd get from, from reducing transportation. And so there's some, if you really want to understand this and do it well, you need to do a sort of full life cycle analysis of, the, of a particular food in a particular place. And so people have done this with a handful of things. And the, the examples I use in the TEDx talk are um, the examples of raising lamb in, and this, this is a couple of more extreme examples to kind of make the point, but raising lamb in New Zealand on pasture and shipping it to the UK, so shipping it all the way around the world to the UK, can be less greenhouse gas intensive than producing lamb in the UK if producing it in the UK requires animal feed which then requires the whole extra process of growing and harvesting the animal feed to give to the, to the lamb. Right. So it's counterintuitive, you'd think, you know, producing something in New Zealand, shipping it around the world. Must yeah, be... you'd, you'd think just by instinct, a lamb from Wales, which is a three-hour drive from London, right. has, to be more, has to be more carbon efficient than lamb from New Zealand, which is literally the other side of the world. Right. But because the transportation part of the, of the puzzle is so small relative to everything else... It, so it could be. I mean, it could be more efficient to produce it in Wales. Um, but, if you, but if the inputs are greater for producing it on suboptimal pasture or whatever, then, um, then it, it isn't necessarily. Right. Um, and yeah, I guess if you live somewhere... Like, I live in California, where California is a huge state with right. lots of different types of terrain and a huge agriculture industry. So I'd imagine most foods from California have been grown or raised relatively efficiently because because they have access to pasture and they have access to the right amounts of sunlight or lack of sunlight, depending on what kind of food they're trying to grow. Right. Yeah, so, so California, if you, if you define local by, the, by, the state, state. by state boundaries, which some people do, then California is probably one of the few states in the US where you would eat well. And then eat. the idea of saying the whole of California is local when I grew up, when we both grew up in England, where right. <laughs> which is substantially smaller than just one, that one state. Right, exactly. Um, and so... So the idea of the TEDx talk was, was firstly to push back on that idea of food miles and to say, well, this isn't, this isn't a good metric for the environmental sustainability of the food you eat. Um, there may be 
lots of other good reasons to eat local food. Uh, so I mean, if you go to somewhere with a farmer's market and you, the, the sort of community building the farmer's market does and the sort of face-to-face interaction you can have with a farmer. Yeah, supporting a local community, get, supporting right. a, a small business owner rather than a, multi, than totally. a huge corporation. Yeah. yeah, there are lots of other reasons you might want to buy some of your food locally, um, but reducing greenhouse gas emissions through, through food miles is not, it doesn't seem to be a good one. Um, and so the second part of the TEDx talk was, I guess, the, the kind of the message I really wanted to get to, because that is where you can make a difference. So if you do care about your carbon footprint from your food and you do want to make a difference by through your food choices, then then all of the evidence demonstrates that if you were dramatically reducing or eliminating meat consumption, animal agriculture products is a huge, can make a huge difference to, to your carbon food right. footprint. And that includes dairy products as well, right? Is it, yeah. You saw... Because I'm I'm veggie but not vegan, and I'm very aware that both cheese and egg and various dairy products that I eat also have a huge carbon footprint. Yeah, but again, there's, there's differences between those. So cows, as we've sort of already alluded to in the, in the Brazil context, cows and sheep being ruminants are, m- are much worse in terms of carbon emissions than other forms of animal agriculture. Because and firstly, the amount of space they take up, and secondly, the methane that they emit. Yeah, they're, they're ruminants, and so they have a different digestive system that generates a huge amount of, of methane uh, methane as we yeah. used to say <laughs> um, i know you've americanized yourself i noticed it in the talk as well i was like yeah that's not how he used to say that word <laughs> i wanted to make my message comprehensive to yeah and <laughs> understandable to um yeah so so again so eggs have a you know you people have done a pretty good job at this point of, of mapping out the sort of range of greenhouse gas emissions per unit uh kilogram or per unit protein of different animal products and mm-hmm. consistently cow products so including beef and milk and then sheep products come much higher um, per unit than do pig chicken um, other animal products and then but then vegetable proteins are are, are lower still Um, so you can reduce your if if it's just your carbon footprint you're concerned about you can reduce that um, much more effectively by eliminating cow products i know people who do things like they'll do vegan they'll go vegan for one month and even that, I mean, if, if enough people do that, that's one-twelfth of the animal product creation and waste. Right. Same, same idea with Meatless Mondays. So you, if, yeah. if everyone strictly adhered to a Meatless Monday idea, then that would be one-seventh, assuming we didn't compensate on Tuesdays. But, <laughs> but, <laughs> All right, double double Meat Tuesdays. <laughs> you know the rules. <clears throat> exactly. Although, I, you know, I, the, the, the environmental impact of animal agriculture is so huge that the, the more rational response would be a meat Monday whereby we only ate meat on Mondays than, than meatless right. Mondays. Like, reducing by a seventh is not an, an appropriate response to the scale of the, of the problem. Reducing by six sevenths would be much more in line with, with what we need to do globally to, to reduce the contribution of agriculture and animal agriculture in particular to, so what, to climate change. What proportion of climate change is, uh, is driven by agriculture and the meat industry and what proportion is transport and what proportion you know, oh i'm just no I, it's, i'm dropping um, something on you right now which yeah, is yeah, just yeah. Like... and these are figures i should know um agriculture is roughly 15 percent okay uh, i believe of, of of global uh climate emissions uh so i think in the u.s it's about nine percent of the u.s emissions are from agriculture but globally it's about 15 um but then uh land use and land use change which is basically deforestation and and other conversion of natural habitat to, to agriculture accounts for somewhere between 12 and 16 percent extra and a lot of that is associated with agriculture so a lot of the deforestation as we've said in brazil is for 
for agriculture, for pasture or for, for crop agriculture. And so if you, if you include the emissions from land use change into the agricultural emissions, then it's larger still, um, okay. but a minimum of 15% globally, which I believe is on par with the transport sector globally. That's a huge amount. Um, like I know I travel a lot. I frequently fly, which I feel bad about, but I, you know, that's partly my job. I'm always back across yeah. the country. Uh, and also I live in LA, which is a city that's very hard to get around without a car. So I'm in my yeah. car for a lot, but I don't have a kid and I don't eat meat. So I feel like, I don't know. I, yeah, well, it's, uh, at the end of that today's talk, I, I cite a paper that was published earlier this year, which sort of made the rounds in some sort of popular media that, um, it was a, a study of, of how different individual behavioral changes might contribute to climate change mitigation. And, and predictably, of course, by far and away, the biggest uh, response is if you, by having one less child. And so for every extra carbon footprint that you don't produce. Right, because uh, each child is then sort of responsible for that carbon footprint of an entire person over a lifetime. Right. Uh, so, you know, f- fewer people will be... And potentially that person might produce more people who then... Indeed, yeah. Um, so that, that by far and away sort of is the, the, was at least the conclusion of that paper, the biggest sort of uh, effect you could change. But after that, it was flying less, um, driving either no car or an uh, electric car. Um, and then I think fourth or fifth on the list was, was eating a plant-based diet. Um, so the point I conclude with in our talk is that, uh, that eating is something we do hopefully several, at least several times a day. Yep. And so you have this sort of regular opportunity to make decisions about what you eat and how that influences the climate change and the environment, whereas some of those other things are sort of presumably much less frequent decisions. Yeah, well, although you can still, again, make those decisions of just, well, do I really need to take the car to go around the corner when I could walk it or I could bike it? Sure. Yeah. Or I could take the train? Yeah, yeah. Maybe I should have, I should have run here for this interview instead of, uh, I know, instead, instead of driving. How long would that have taken you? A mere four hours, I think <laughs> right. it would have taken. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, but you know, environmental scientists are no, uh, we're all, we're as guilty of, of flying around the world for conferences and uh, for field work <laughs> and things, as you, as you can tell. So, um, yeah, it's, it's hard to. It's, it's partly, partly the way the system is set up, particularly in terms of, you know, the city you live in, for example, it's pretty, uh, it'd be prohibitive, I guess, not to have a car and to, it to drive. It is. So. People, now that things like Uber and Lyft are more prevalent, it is, I know, increasing numbers of people in L.A. who exist without a car. Hmm. And you can do it, and it it's not too bad now. But still, yeah, what I do... And also, I, I have gigs that are out of town, and yeah. it's hard to. It's, yeah, for sure. Yeah, um, but then it's also hard to change your diet, but it's very doable just to make... Like you say, just make those decisions. Each meal... Is a decision. I think you. Yeah. You were even talking about in the talk. It's just like every time you sit, every time you order from menu, or every time you go out to get some food or buy in some food from the supermarket, you're making a mini decision right. that could swing one of two ways, and right. you could make that decision to go with the less. Yeah. Yeah. And and it is it re- as much as it is nice to kind of go oh it's local still local beef is so much worse than distant. Sorry. Yeah, and that, and so that, and that's the other sort of uh, the other perpetual myth, I guess. In in this is this is all the idea that grass fed beef is necessarily better than than intensively raised beef, and that's uh, fairly clearly not universally the case. And grass fed cows are alive for longer; they take longer to reach slaughter weight. Uh, they take up much more space, and so the, the purely from an environmental point of view and an emissions point of view, grass fed beef is almost certainly uh, worse than, than intensively raised beef. Didn't you even not s- worse for the cow, almost certainly. If one was right. a cow, presumably one would be happier on a, on a pasture than, than in a feedlot. But. Didn't you even say that eating the grass produces more methane than eating the grain? 
or am I making that I, one? Up? I didn't, but I think I, I do think that's right. I think I think you featured us in one of your last episodes. Had a story on on the, on this question I about grass because I do remember there was a story we covered ages ago, and listeners who are if you know what we're talking about, please message in. But there there are there have been studies on supplements that can be added to animal feed that massively reduce the methane output. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, so animal feed is designed to grow the animal as efficiently as possible, right? Um, so as fast as possible, and again, therefore, the the, the, cat, the animal's just alive for less time, and so. And, and methane is a gas that is substantially worse as a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide as well. Yeah, shorter lived in the atmosphere, um, but more potent, uh, substantially more potent, so uh, a, a stronger climate forcing effect. Yeah. And that's even before you get into the other part of agriculture that is terrible for us for our future existence, and that is antibiotics. <coughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Do you want some water? Or? No, I'm good. Um, uh, yeah. Because that, again, that's that that terrifies me almost as much as the greenhouse effect, the fact that across across America and across the world, every these intensive farms are just this massive laboratory growing antibiotic-resistant bacteria. Uh, yeah, and so while... You know, while I just said that in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, grass-fed beef is uh, usually substantially worse than intensively raised beef. That is not in any way advocating for more feedlots or farm factory farmed yeah. animals at all. It's just saying that what you what is perceived to be or often perceived to be a solution is 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 almost certainly not um, right. Uh, and absolutely, I think there's a, a growing awareness that the the modern factory farming system in in this country and elsewhere is unsustainable and, and doing terrible things for both the animal welfare and, and, and the environment, uh, and indeed with implications for, for human health. Um, so, I, I, do, I mean, I, behavioral change is possible, but the rate at which it's happening is pretty slow. I see much more uh, optimism in the emergence of clean meat. You've probably heard of these sort of companies that are producing laboratory-grown animal flesh. I have. I'm, in, I'm interested in this. Again, as someone who doesn't eat meat now, who yeah. just... There are. I'm, I'm yet to try things like there's things like the Impossible Burger. I haven't tried that yet, but that's that is that is different. That is something right. that is, I think, soy and maybe mushroom, various other plant-based protein that has been engineered to mimic the effect of meat. It's right. supposedly, in in quotes, bleeds as. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. So the right, so the Impossible Burger juices. and Beyond Burger are yeah. plant plant-based. So. Uh, at least the Beyond Burger is pea protein. I'm not sure what's an Impossible Burger, but those, yeah, those are plant-based but mimicking meat. But then, the sort of in parallel to that, is emerging industries and sort of tech startups that are producing, that are taking animal cells and then growing those into meatballs and steaks and chicken wings and things that um, that never. So it's, it's, it is animal. It's exactly the same. It's animal. It's flesh animal DNA that has developed in- without any of the animal suffering or pain or, or without any living animal with, with any kind of yeah. sentience. So. I'd be interested to know I'm sure we have a fair number of veggies and vegans who listen to this show I, I'd be interested to know what the split is. Please message in or tweet us or Facebook us uh, at probablyscience, probablyscience at gmail.com um, and Facebook slash probablyscience. I would be very interested to know how you feel because uh, I, I would be okay with that but that's it depends on what your reasons for eating for not eating meat are because I think also I haven't been a full vegetarian for that long I was pescatarian for quite a while and then I eventually got rid of fish but I think if you've if you've for a long time haven't eaten meat or you've grown up not eating meat or if you don't eat meat for religious reasons 
then the idea of eating something that is flesh in any way, shape, or form probably is just squicky. It's just sort of it, 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 the whole concept of it makes you feel uncomfortable or weird. But I, I sort of gave it up for loosely a mixture of environmental and vaguely ethical reasons. <laughs> and most of those reasons fall away once you get to this idea of lab-grown meat. Totally, yeah. I think if you were, I think if you were a vegetarian who still craved meat or, or missed it in some way, then this, this offers a great solution. You can go back and you can have a, a guilt-free steak. Um, but I see, I guess my optimism comes much more for from hoping that people who currently eat meat that comes from animals would start eating uh-huh. this. Because that would, this would all but eliminate the greenhouse gas footprint and the, all of the environmental land use change and all, all of the obviously all problems of animal welfare and things. So, Well, well uh, I guess it depends on how efficiently this process can work because presumably those labs and those those factories, whatever they become, those sort of bio factories will have an energy cost and will have a they will. footprint. Um, I, th- I think the first uh, life cycle analyses have just started coming out. I think there was one uh-huh. that came out earlier this year that started looking at what the footprint would be. Um, but it's it's orders of magnitude small. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be on a, on a par with with vegetable protein, um, possibly even lower. Um, you know, grown sort of, uh, legumes and things for grown in um, conventional form. So uh, it's all but going to do away with those with those problems if it, if it can scale. Obviously, the problem at this point is if it hitting scale, scale and then getting the cost down to something that's competitive with... and getting the concept sold to the public. <clears throat> because yeah, yeah, that's going to be a yeah. tricky thing. It's going to depend very much on how it's pitched because. People are... Well, this is something we talked about at the beginning of the show and then we, we got away from. But, for example, the idea of GMOs is and the idea of labelling food GMO-free uh, is something that people, particularly in the sort of organic food movement and natural food sure. movement, uh, people are very like, like, oh, I don't want scientists meddling with my food. I know what they're doing. Uh, and to a large extent, utterly... Un- it's quite an unscientific view to yeah. think that. Yeah. But it's very hard selling people on that idea. Yeah, I, I, so that absolutely. The, the sort of psychology of how people respond to this it will be interesting, and I think mm-hmm. there's some deliberate efforts at this point to get this called being called clean meat and not lab meat or something. You know, yeah. just even those. Sort of it, it's very interesting to think psychologically, and it is just because of what we're historically programmed to. Right now, even even as a veggie, I'm there's a little bit of me that goes, oh, uh, uh, this these cells, this animal protein grown in a lab with zero suffering is somehow weirder than the idea of an animal right. with a brain and feelings and a name being raised and then slaughtered and cut into pieces and suddenly like, with uh, all the that's normal that, con- yeah for contamination and yeah, yeah. that thing's normal yeah. that thing i just <laughs> described is perfectly normal whereas the idea of this sort of this completely unsentient stuff that's grown like you would grow bean sprouts yeah no, that's weird <laughs> <laughs> yeah so yeah I, I don't know how that's going to play out but hopefully in in favor of, of, of rationality yeah, <laughs> and not, I, I, and not I, necessarily I, intuition i would be very interested to try it i've i certainly i've seen a few news reports on it and right now they're like currently this costs twenty thousand dollars a burger or whatever because that's just <clears throat> right what a We'd, prototype in a startup costs j- just out of reach of your sort of end of night budget <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah you'd have to really be like you'd be on like on a vegas trip or something when you're really <laughs> splashing out <clears throat> but um yeah so we'll, we'll see where that goes but those industries are growing enormously right now so. well also I, I guess it would be very interesting from a sort of 
once once it gets to the point where the science where it can partner with with culinary experts and chefs because you can presumably once you reach a certain point you can engineer this meat to have the different kinds of properties you might want for different kinds of cooking like you can you can get a steak with exactly the right amount of marbling of fat and that kind of thing for the different types of cuts you can get sort of prime beef you can i think so i think that's the idea i mean so i'm sort of getting kind of the limits of my knowledge on this now but um but i, I know this was the first products i produced i think been things like meatballs and sort of like ground beef where there's sort of Right, where, where, it's where very... consistency and, and texture and things isn't so important, but I think the idea is to be able to sort of yeah get kind of uh, marbled steaks and you know things that are that would that would, would replace all of the meat products that would otherwise have come from a, from an animal. I, I'm into it, but again, you should follow the uh, the Good Food Institute is a is a group doing really good work on this. They're worth following online and uh, just give them a, a little plug. Cool. Um, they, cool. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. What is it they specifically do? So they're sort of a nexus for a lot of the industries that are working on, for a lot of the companies that are working on these um, individual products. Uh, and so they're trying to um, generate information and content and understanding and acceptance of, of these of these products. So. Cool. So what, what, what are you, what is your research pivoting into now? What are you sort of... What are you focusing on in the next few years? Yeah, so I still have two parallel strands of research, I guess, and one is sort of more still focused on on and in tropical forests and how um, people living in and around forests use them and can develop these sort of more sustainable alternatives to um, to deforestation and agriculture. So uh, we're working particularly in the state of Acre, Brazil, which is sort of right northwestern Brazil. It's one of the sort of more remote corners, um, um, partly because there's a the the, gov- the state government there is doing a really good job of trying to push so this green economic development uh, and investing in um, sustainable alternatives to the business as usual elsewhere in the Amazon like cat- cattle and soy uh-huh. uh, and trying to develop um, sectors and industries uh, to to push um, natural rubber and Amazonian fish and acai and these other products um, so partly looking at the viability of those and understanding the impacts that they the benefits they might bring to traditional and indigenous people living in and around forests. And so the other strand of my research is really continuing to look at um, certification programs uh, and um, other mechanisms that try to improve the sustainability of um, of commodity production. So we submitted a grant proposal yesterday to look at um, the cacao industry in, in eastern, northeastern Brazil and Bahia, uh, understanding how small-scale cacao producers can become certified and hopefully therefore get um, economic benefits to themselves, but also ensure uh, environmental so this, standards. So this is the same thing you were talking about at the beginning of the, the this episode where you were talking about like the Rainbow Alliance, sorry, the Rainforest Alliance stickers and... Uh... Yeah, so this is, yeah, exactly. So this is a different different certification program, but um, same same sort of idea. And so this, I mean, so this sort of ties into the local food part a little bit. And I think one of the attractions of local food for people is that they get to see the farmer and talk to them and get sh- some assurance about how their food has been produced. Right. And I think that's really valuable. Um, but it hit, quickly hits a sort of limit of scale in that you can only, as a farmer, you can only travel to so many farmers markets, you can only travel a certain distance. Yes. And so other mechanisms of communicating that sustainability, I think are useful. And I think that's what certification does. And so if you, if it's a, if it's a credible and trustworthy certification program then if you see that label on your on your coffee whether it's fair trade or in forest alliance or something else if you see that on your coffee or chocolate or something you know that tells you something about the social and economic and or social and environmental conditions under which that has been produced and that can be on the other side of the world but it's transmitting and conveying that information to you as a consumer uh, and then hopefully you're willing to pay a little bit more for it and then the idea is that some of those economic 
benefits trickle back to the, the producer and they get a price premium, a benefit for, well, that, for conforming with those standards. And, 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 and then, from their point of view, a financial incentive to do economic, sorry, to do environmentally sound versions of farming rather than... Right. It was what we were talking about at the beginning of like raising the raising the value to them of doing the right kind of thing in the environment. Exactly. Yeah. So rather than punishing them for doing the wrong thing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so it's these sets of principles and criteria that, this, that the certification agrees on. And if the farmer usually has to change something about what they're doing to meet those, and so raises the sort of the bar, the standard of, of practices on the farm, but in doing so, get some um, either either a price premium or secure access to a market or access to a new market for you know, sort of niche kind of uh, consumers who are willing to pay for this sort of sustainability brand. Which people generally, or a lot of, like, I'm just thinking about myself, in, in the supermarket, I'll pay a bit more just for the free-range eggs over the cage eggs, even though I've since found out from Googling that in America particularly that designation does not... Yeah, there's a lot of confusing language around eggs in, in the US. There's a... It's, it, it might well not have had a good life yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. when it's it says free range or organic on the packet but I still find myself I still find myself going to the nicer looking box with a picture on it and uh, <laughs> the happy hands yeah. that costs a dollar fifty more that is one of the problems with with labels generally is that this now it can be a little overwhelming as a consumer you can just sort of face with these barrage of different certificates and labels and unless you have a good understanding at least a reasonable understanding of what they mean and which ones are credible and which ones are just kind of greenwashing then it's it's hard to know how to select between those so i think that is one of the, the right because again there are also things like um these sort of organic food alliance or whatever that organization is their labels which have certain things they won't like they'll go like okay no gmo food which is fair enough if someone is genuinely right. i don't want that but as we were discussing beforehand there are far worse things for you that are just that are not GMO and far better things for you that are GMO right. and far better things for the environment that are GMO. Yeah, so USDA Organic is definitely one of those sort of more prevalent labels in, in the US and so some people uh, wholeheartedly support USDA Organic. I have some reservations about it. Mm -hmm. um, but um, yeah, they'll, they'll exclude certain things like, like GMOs. And then, and then there's things like the non-GMO certified project now which is just, you can find non-GMO salt which is great. <laughs> <laughs> In case, so you were, in case you were concerned that your that, your, that sodium you were atom before. and that chlorine <laughs> atom have been yeah. fused together <clears throat> in a in the absence of fertilizers and right, so so that's reassuring, um, <laughs> and so there is and that's where, so that's where there's potential for the, for these labels to confuse and mislead and and sort of spread misinformation and misunderstanding, which is uh, I think a challenge. So I get what 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 are the big takeaways? I, I guess the. One of the big takeaways from what you were saying is what you said at the end of the TEDx talk, which is the biggest change you can make is just avoid is just as much as possible cut meat and animal-based products out of your diet. Yeah, and and if that sounds like too much, then um, particularly reducing ruminant products, so sheep, cow and sheep products, will be the if if you're just concerned about the environmental uh, or rather the greenhouse gas impacts of your food choices, then eliminating ruminant products is the, by far the biggest step you can do. Followed by so other pig, animal products. So pigs are better for the environment than sheep? Uh, in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. Right. Yes. But obviously there are other ways in which animal <laughs> agriculture affects the environment. Yes. So like, you know, you've probably heard of manure lagoons and, and you know, on factory farms or associated with factory farms. And... Worst vacation ever. <laughs> <laughs> Who ever thought that was a good idea? You hear lagoon and you think, well, that's going to be a beautiful boating trip. <laughs> Second only to being flown into Jack's camp in the middle of Kalahari and seeing seeing nothing <laughs> yeah. for miles around. 
Um, so yeah, so there were, there were other ways in which there were other environmental impacts, um, and but in, purely in terms of greenhouse gas emissions and climate change, then then yes, cows but and sheep were. It does feel like some of the work you were doing you're doing in northern Brazil. It does feel like if you if you can get government consent and you can get the authorities to help out, it often does end up financially better off for the local workers to be doing the environmentally sound thing in this in the same way that we've got like Trump trying to bring back the coal mines despite every economic expert pointing out that these mines employ very few people and actually far more good will happen in the local economy if we get more people involved in wind and solar and other sustainable energy sources totally and so I think that's one of the sort of uh, frustrations and one of the sort of missing pieces in the in in the sort of environmental message is is that it, it, being more environmentally conscious or friendly doesn't have to mean sacrificing the things that, that some people care about about profits right. and growth and um, it, there are opportunities for gr- green growth and green economies particularly um, if there is initiative shown at the top by the by the authorities then actually it can they can adjust how the whole financial totally. system works so that actually it ends up being no, you, you, it's a win-win rather than punishing yourself for doing the right thing. Right, and nudging the economy in directions that, that would be favourable in terms of environmental sustainability um, would, would help. So where subsidies are allocated or even just removing subsidies from, from industries that are you know, particularly environmentally damaging would be, would be a great start. Um, and I think, that, I think as more and more cases of... As the business case for, for sort of green behaviour can be demonstrated more, I think that'll help to... To indicate that, that, that it is possible to um, to have a profitable enterprise that is also uh, also green, and so uh, you know the emergence of yeah renewable energy, clean meat, like um, electric cars, entire jurisdictions like like Acre in Brazil where we're working, which is as a entire state making a committed effort to try to um, uh, to invest in in green technologies and green industries. I think those sorts of examples. It is embarrassing to, how. Like places like northern Brazil are going forward, and now and America, which should be the country of anything that really is spearheading this kind of thing, is regressing. At least at the federal level, and so I, I, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I guess local but, state, like particularly states like Colorado, where we currently are in California, where yeah, I live. Yeah, and it seems. I mean, it seems like that was one of the responses of of of, um, of Trump indicating. Uh, lack of enthusiasm for Paris was that um, at the more local level at the state or, or, or county or city level in the US there were... Yeah, like um, if we're not going to meet this target at the federal level we're sure as hell going to meet it yeah, at the state level. Yeah, and so you know, there's definitely opportunity for changes at all sorts of levels from, from, from the individual up and so um, I don't think that uh, a lack of enthusiasm at the federal level has to mean inaction across the board. Right. Yeah. Um, we, we'll, we'll link to the TEDx talk but where else can our listeners find you and find what you do yeah, uh, I tweet a couple of times a year at, <laughs> I think it's at Newton underscore Pete we'll double check that and we'll, we'll link to that in the show Newton notes Newton. Um, and then I have a web page which is Squarespace I don't even remember what it is it's squarespace.com it's Peter Newton or something <laughs> we'll find that too we'll, yeah, we'll link to that from our also Squarespace powered probably science.com otherwise University of Colorado Boulder Peter Newton and you'll find me there awesome Thank you so much for joining. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're going to go. I think we're going to now fail in an escape room, I think is the plan. (laughs) Sounds good. Yeah, that's that's how it works. I get to a city, 
find an old uni friend I haven't seen in a decade and a half and instantly press gang him into doing a podcast. That was a lot of fun. It was really good but, to see you. No, thanks so much for joining. Uh, listeners, thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us for this little on-the-road um, lo-fi. We're just using the mini Zoom recorder traveling. I hope it sounded okay. Uh, and we'll be back um, after Christmas with uh, the whole gang back together. But yeah, thanks so much. Have a great uh, break over the holidays if you're having a break. If you're not having a break, I hope what you're doing is good. And we will see you in a week. Cheers. Bye.